Hello. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. So my recorder has been sent off to the manufacturer and I now await a replacement. I don't know how long that's going to take, but I have a plan. I am sorry for the gap in Gatekeeper's Deception, but I decided that was the best course of action. So come and check in next week to hear what fun and interesting stuff I'm able to present while we wait for my new recorder to arrive. I am full of turkey and stuffing and roasted root vegetables and mashed potatoes and bean stuff and cranberry sauce and gravy and pie. I love pie. I don't fall into a turkey coma before I finish recording this intro. One more thing I have been thankful for over Thanksgiving weekend was that I was able to salvage chapter three before the recorder died. And that is what you will hear today. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter three. What better way to infiltrate? The bell on the door of Hreth's depleted general store jangled, calling Sandra Flack in from the back room. The bell seemed noisier these days, with so little stock on the shelves to absorb its sound. The large front room had a cold hollowness to it, like a cave with a wooden floor. The stranger who'd entered appeared to think so too, as he revolved in bewilderment. "'Sir?' Sandra said to the back of his grey-flecked, dark-brown head, attempting her usual storekeeper cheer— is there something I can help you with? Oh, uh, yes. As he turned to face her, Sandra saw the insignia of Drakenmoor embroidered on the cap and cloak of his dispatch rider's uniform. That city was nearly a week away. What's happened here? he went on. Fire? Earthquake? Dragon? Fire, certainly. Sandra began rearranging the rolls of rickrack and lace to keep her hands busy, but not from natural causes. Is it true, then, what I heard in Fry? An attack? Sandra's hands stopped moving. You mean you hadn't heard of this in Drakenmoor? The news hasn't got farther than Fry after three months? And even then it was put across more or less as a rumor. He ambled to her counter, lifted the lid of the licorice tin, and replaced it, disappointed at the void inside. People didn't think it was possible, and I admit I agreed with them. Why would Dregor attack such a crummy, sorry, little place as this? I mean, what's even here? Practically nothing now. Conscious of her unkempt, apathetic appearance, she leaned back against the shelf with what she hoped was nonchalance to get a better look at the man. Not much beyond her own forty-five years, she reckoned, broad-shouldered, standard dispatch rider's broadsword at his right side, dark beard and bushy eyebrows enlivening the weather-dried face, a seasoned face. Used to be a thriving farming village, little bit of mining, too, west yonder in the mountains. That's why we hoped word would have got round to outlying areas. Most of our crops were destroyed, most everything we had to trade or sell is gone. We need supplies to last until we can rebuild— Sandra opened her eyes wide. Just look at my store. She shook her head. The empty barrels on the floor, the two remaining bolts of full cloth, a few sacks of flour and beans in one corner, the scattered remains of a brisk business illustrated her point better than words could. 
His brown eyes followed her movement, and the eyebrows contracted in sympathy. She was lucky, she told him. The invaders had only battered her front windows and kicked in the front support post, causing one section of the roof to collapse. The width of the main road had saved her haven from the fire that had destroyed the entire northwest quadrant of the village. The man's gaze hadn't left her face as she talked. Embarrassed by her display of intensity, Sendra reached under the counter for a rag with which to dust the shelves. Perhaps the attempt to bring some life back into the shop was futile, but she decided right then and there that she had not given up. "'It's funny, you know,' she mindlessly swiped the rag across an empty shelf. "'It wasn't that long ago that a lot of people in this place didn't even believe Dregor existed.' We had young people training to defend the village, and the older set clicking their tongues and thinking the young folk were too imaginative, caught up in the thrill of adventure and heroism. Now the unbelievers are the loudest whiners. There was no shortage of customers, a seemingly endless stream of despondent villagers leaving just as disappointed as when they came in. In spite of Sendra's efforts, twenty sacks of flour went only so far, and her credit was already being pushed to the limit in the nearest villages and towns. Not much stock, and too few villagers with coppers to pay for what little there was. She passed her credit on to her neighbors whenever she could, but not one of them could guarantee payment within a limited time. And they tossed blame about like chicken feed. She added, "'Least helpful, most helpless,' my mother used to say." "'Look, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I'll tell them when I go back through Fry to send as much help as they can.' His dark eyes spoke sympathy and kindness. It had been years since a man had looked at her like that. Her hand involuntarily straightened any stray hair. His face became puzzled. "'Have you had no help from the Duke?' Sendra nodded hastily. Some might cast aspersions on Lord Barthelon for lack of action, but Sendra knew he had done what he could. Oh, yes, he sent people here as soon as he heard, and him with his wife ill and all. It took over a month for them to arrive, but then they helped rebuild pretty much everything that's standing out there now. They left only a few days ago, and promised to bring more supplies. But even if they bring seed corn, wheat, and potatoes, it'll be too late in the season for planting." Like I said, I'll pass on word. That's good. Sandra brushed her chapped hands down the front of her apron and wished she hadn't run out of salve. Did you come all this way just to confirm rumors? Oh, no, of course not, he replied, reaching into an inside pocket of his cloak and pulling out a brown envelope. I have this. He flipped it over to examine the inscription on the front. Are you Sandra Flack? I am. Sendra's body tensed with alarm. This says it's for the Haladins. Care of yourself. Sendra must have gasped at the name, and she was sure her face had paled. Are you all right, ma'am? He looked poised to spring over the counter to assist her. She brushed a hand across her face and moved to take the envelope. I'm fine. It's just... It looked so official. Bad news? She glanced at the inscription before turning it over and felt her eyes widen, the bright green Barthelon seal. Why would Lord Barthelon write to the Halidans unless... Where did this come from? Her voice trembled. It came all the way from Shale, ma'am. It's about Kier, Sandra thought. It has to be. In trouble? She bit both lips in dismay. There were those villagers who would love to hear about the fruition of their predictions. Kier Halladin in prison in shale. They'd be delighted. The Halladins weren't here. What should she do? Ma'am, would you be able to tell me where they live so I can deliver it, or should I leave it with you? 
Oh, call me Sendra, would you? She said absently. Everyone else does. He tipped his cap. And you can call me Tell if you like. She leaned her elbows against the smooth wood. To be honest, I'm not sure what to do. The Halladin's farm was the one you passed on your right as you came to the outskirts of the village. Tell looked puzzled for a moment. Then he understood. Oh, he whistled. Wiped out. Are they... did they... He stopped as if unable to speak the thought on his tongue. No, no, they're alive, her voice tightened. Some didn't make it. I'm glad there weren't more losses, but it's hard. My son lost one of his best friends. At least I didn't lose my son, but Adric's father and mother can't say the same thing. Movement over Tell's shoulder caught her eye, and she signaled him to silence as the door opened, the bell accentuating it unnecessarily. The leading village gossip, short and squat Jessica Bolin, entered, followed by her second, the magistrate's tall, skeletal wife, Hilary Wynne. The pair always reminded Sandra of a pot-bellied stove and its pipe. Sandra discreetly tucked the envelope in her apron pocket. "'I'll get this to them, you have my word,' she said to Tell in a low voice. "'And I'll come back with supplies,' Tell bowed. "'You have my word.' He tipped his cap to the ladies as he slipped by and out the door. They both turned their heads to watch him. "'Well,' Jessica was not unexpectedly the first to speak, "'what is a dispatch rider from Drakenmore doing here? Did he bring supplies?' "'No, not this time,' Sandra realized belatedly that she hadn't tipped him. "'Then why did he bother coming at all?' Jessica said, her lips pursed in a polite sneer. "'Perhaps as a dispatch rider he had a message to dispatch,' Sandra said dryly. "'Well, did he?' If he did, it wasn't for you, Jessica. Sandra felt happier than she had in weeks. She conducted the hen's business efficiently and sent them on their way, uplifted by the dispatch rider's promise and, admittedly, by the way her heart fluttered as he looked at her, she recalled a recipe to make her own salve for chapped hands using herbs, a bit of lard, and beeswax. She also, in that moment, knew what to do with the letter. She put her closed sign on the door early and left to walk the few blocks to Brendow's little cottage in the southeast end of the village. The near-summer sun glimmered lazily through the late afternoon clouds. The wood smoke smell that had hung perpetually in the air for weeks had begun to dissipate at last, to be replaced with a freshness reminiscent of the spring air they'd missed. The outlying fields that had been blackened by the fires had begun to send green shoots up out of the earth— with things turning green again, Sandra found it much easier to believe the village of Rath would be all right. But Sandra, like Jessica and Hillary and every other villager, had continually asked herself why Dregor would choose to raid a place like Rath, just to annoy Key and Barthelen. She couldn't see it. Nor could she give a second thought to the ridiculous notion put forward by Jessica that young Kier was connected with the attack, that she was some sort of spy— Dregor's soldiers had asked some strange questions, or so she had been told, and they had destroyed buildings systematically, as if looking for something or someone. Sandra had one idea, but she didn't dare voice it to those two gossiping ninnies. Could she defend Kier by disclosing distrust of the girl's friend and mentor? No, she could not. It just made more sense to Sendra, though, that Lord Dregor would not randomly choose Hrath, but that he would send his men here for a specific reason, and the only reason she could think of was that Brendau lived here. Few Wemniars, the masters of the warrior arts known as the Wepnian, remained in the Duchy of Heath. 
Her own son Tarkin had spent years training with him alongside Kier, young Adric, Bianca, and some others. Nobody knew Brendau's complete history, but it was said he had travelled all over Rydris and had done his fair share in the battles alongside Dukes Barthelin and Valraker. That could easily make him a target for Dregor. She had to admit the one flaw in her idea. Brendau's house alone had remained untouched when the rest of the village had been all but flattened. Many villagers decided that meant he was in league with Dregor, just as Jessica had decided about Kier. Shortly after the attack, a group of villagers had taken it upon themselves to visit Brendau's tiny little unscathed cottage carrying axes, clubs, and torches. Strangely, they had not been able to find it. Odder still, they could not recall their purpose and had wandered about aimlessly before ending up back at the tavern in confusion over their makeshift weapons. Sendra didn't know what to make of it. Today she had no trouble locating Brendau's home. He sat on his front step, stroking his cat, Nix. He rose as Sendra came in through the gate, spilling Nix off his lap. Even at his advanced age he moved with the litheness and grace of a youthful warrior. "'Sendra, what brings you here?' "'I have something I thought you might be able to help me with.' She drew the envelope out of her pocket and held it out to him. "'From Lord Barthelon,' he ran a thoughtful finger over the seal. "'The dispatch rider said it came from Shale,' Sendra nodded. "'I thought if it was bad news—about Kier, I mean—you'd want to know.' "'Gareth and Della won't be back for a couple weeks more.' He studied the item he held in his fingertips. The old man hesitated, then agreed with her. He pulled open the seal and slid the folded pieces of parchment from their enclosure. "'Shale Castle letter-paper!' Worry edged his tone. Sendra watched him anxiously as he unfolded the sheets and hastily glanced over them. She allowed herself to breathe only when a smile began to play on his lips. It's not about Kier, it's from Kier. Writing from Shale Castle? Sendra asked, disbelief and pleasure vying for prominence. It would seem our Kier has come a long way. Sendra walked back to her shop with lighter feet than she'd had since the attack. The Halidan girl was not in prison, and her letter had been delivered by a man named Tell. What a lovely day. Brundau closed the door behind Sendra and leaned heavily against it, clutching Kier's letter to his chest. She had found Dunverin. About a week prior to her departure from Hreth, Kier had been attacked on her way home one evening. She had single-handedly defended herself against eight men, going far beyond what he had trained her to do. She had come to him later and showed him a medallion she wore, asking if he could tell her anything about it. He couldn't. When she told him it had flared with warmth during the fight, he felt uneasy. He decided she was ready to leave anyway, to go out into the world and learn, as had been her goal for years. He did not mention his possibly baseless unease to her, but felt relief when he saw her safely away. The attack on the village so closely on the heels of her departure was not indisputable confirmation of his fears. Still, he couldn't help but thank the gods she was not there. He carried on, living, reading, training other young people, but all the time Brenda wondered if she had found him. How could she find what she didn't know she sought? Yet Brendau could not tell her for fear of word getting around that someone was looking for the exiled Duke of Eckert. He also had to protect his own identity. 
So, giving her his sword, both as a well-deserved gift and as a message to Valraker, Brendau sent her to Wanaka, a place he knew the Dark Elf often met with people who worked for him. And he waited. To finally learn, after all these months, that she had found him, that she was safe, was a soporific for all his disquiet. He sighed as he sank into his chair, giddiness bubbling a chuckle out of his throat. He smiled fondly at the hand that could make even the flowing cursive of Dark Elvish look like it was written by a goblin. Dear Nix, I am certain G and D will pass this on to you, and I have taken the agreed-upon precautions, but who would have guessed that within three months since I last saw you I would be offered the use of this particular seal? This letter will travel under the dukely protection of the High Elf's personal messengers, though I don't put enough trust in them to write in Rydrish. I'm sitting in the library at the second largest castle in the continent of all places, and I'm about to embark on a second journey for someone who says he knows you, a man about whom you taught me all I know. Evidently your information was closer to first hand than you let on. I'm not dead. You'll want to know that, although it's not for want of people trying to make me so. When you said you'd taught me all you could, and that it was up to me to learn the rest through living, you couldn't have been more right. You trained me well, my friend, for which I am thankful, but admittedly there are some aspects of this lifestyle for which there is no training. There are always consequences for standing up for what you believe in. Did you know you can make enemies that way? When you make that first kill, even when it was in self-defense, and wind up being pursued relentlessly, captured, beaten... You have to continually question whether you'd do the same again if given another chance, not things you could have taught, which I guess you knew. It all sounds melodramatic now. To think on it, none of it seems important anymore. At least, it has taken on a dreamlike quality in my memory rather than the vivid nightmare it was at the time. Anyway, I feel at home here and safe. Of course, no place is completely safe. Only this afternoon a magical device exploded in the city square, killing the mayor. I'm putting off saying the one thing I need to say, the main reason I'm writing. I tried to meet with our mutual acquaintance, but he is busy with the aftermath of the explosion. I need to tell someone. I killed a man in cold blood. I hated him, and I believed he deserved to die, so I killed him. I'm not proud of it, and yet I know in my heart I would do it again if given the chance. What does that say about me? Would my hero still want me to work for him if he knew? I'm afraid of the answer. I hope telling you eases my conscience for the next journey. When we've accomplished what we set out to do, perhaps I'll be able to come home for a visit. Be sure to let certain old bats know who my new friends are. I imagine you're sitting in your chair by the window, sipping tea as you read this, a ball of purring fur on your lap. Perhaps you've just come in from working with some more trainees like myself. I imagine that the village is quiet, sleepy as ever, with the biggest excitement being the height of the corn and how many mice the cat dragged in. Has Sheska snatched up Tarkin now that I'm gone? Do Tarkin, Adric, and Bianca still train with you? I have made some fast friends, and in spite of everything, I'm happy. I think of you often. Very truly yours, Freelearn. Brendau folded the letter and stared, unseeing out his cross-hatched front window. The early blooms in his window box were merely a colorful blur at the bottom of his frame of vision. Her letter was thought-provoking in many ways, not the least of which was her confession. Yes, she would not function well with that on her shoulders, and yes, she would be able to carry on now.
The main point that struck him about her letter was something Kier had not intended. She does not know about the attack on the village. He scratched gently under Nix's chin. Kian and Val knew about it, or else Kian could not have sent aid. Nix purred and Brendau nodded in understanding. Brendau tucked the other letter, the one meant for her parents, into a book. He leaned his head back and sighed, noticing a shift in his unease. He looked sideways at the chair that Kier used to occupy so regularly. It was not Kier's tendency to go halfway with anything. Try not to learn everything the hard way. Kier, riding at the head of the party with Fennel, heard Derry call the elf's name. Kier and he both turned in the saddle and looked past Janik and the halfling to the captain atop his warhorse. How long until a suitable camp spot? Derry called. If my memory serves me correctly, Fennel replied, there is an excellent spot not far from here, maybe another half hour. You don't mean another of those two hour half hours, do you? Janik bellowed. I'm tired of those. Ha! The elf tossed back at the dwarf and turned to Kier. You'd think I underestimated the distance every night, the way he goes on. Well, once seems like an accident. Twice was pretty careless. If you do it a third time, nobody's going to believe you grew up around these parts. Fennel returned her smile. Reaching up, he held a cedar branch out of her way and winked at her as he let it snap back to nearly unsaddle Janik. The dwarf's curses echoed through the trees. Nine days ago, they'd crossed the border out of occupied Eckert after weeks of furtive travel into Fennel's homeland, the Guarded Realm. Kier's only education about the area had come from the village schoolteacher who had said it was a wasteland of godless ne'er-do-wells living in anarchy. Fennel confirmed Kier's suspicion that this was myth. Though the realm was not governed by any one individual or group, there was organization. Everyone's ultimate goal was the same. The guarded realm was the home of the Tree of Life, and it must be protected. The tree's protectors were allies to Key and Barthelon, and as the group moved farther from enemy territory, its lightheartedness returned. In Fennel's case, it meant he talked more. In the past few days, the fair-haired elf had chattered so much that Kier thought she'd never last all the way to Placatha, let alone to the plains of Kalkamar, where Kami's tower stood. As I was saying, four times I had to tell him I was joking before he would stop slamming my head into the ground and let me go, Fennel carried on. And on and on, Kier said to herself. Glancing back between the hemlocks, she saw with dismay that there was no hope of rescue from the rest of the party. Janik was similarly entangled with Skimnoddle, and there was no way she wanted help from the halfling. Behind them, Derry was absorbed in a conversation with Jeskelin, towering above the short black man whose bare feet kept sinking slightly in the needle-strewn earth. Kier forced her attention back to Fennel. Youngest, the one they're fondest of. Me, I'm just Fennel, the irritating brother who was too young to be involved in their important discussions, but too old to be sent off to play, not that they didn't try. Kier felt a pang of guilt for having herself used the word irritating so many times to describe her friend. Though he sounded cheerful as ever, she could tell there was a good deal of bitterness beneath the humor in his story. I think that's why I became a tracker, you know he said introspectively. I kept my mouth shut, but my eyes and ears open. She nearly snorted at that, but caught herself. It was probably true. The elf's chatterbox nature likely emerged full force when he wasn't at home. It was an honor, then, that he felt companionable enough with her to talk non-stop and trust that she wasn't going to gag him. 
Kier suddenly realized that all was still, apart from the murmurs of the others' voices and the buzzing of flies amid plodding hooves. Fennel had stopped talking. Turning to her friend, she drew her brows together when she saw that his lips were pursed and his countenance bore an atypical cross expression. "'Hey, Fennel,' she began. He turned his head, and in that brief moment she saw a strange flash in his vivid blue eyes. He faced front again. "'I just don't understand why we haven't seen any scouts. This close to the city, I'd have thought—' He fell silent again. "'Fennel, are you nervous? About going home, I mean?' He exhaled loudly. <sighs> Nervous? No way. This is going to be great. I can't wait to show you my house and introduce you. And he was off again. Kier didn't believe for a second that he wasn't nervous. For nearly three weeks, Kier and her companions had trekked on eggshells through the enemy-occupied Duchy of Eckert, staying away from populated areas whenever possible. Kier had admired the humble majesty of the Deserat mountain range, the vast beauty of the rolling plains, colored vibrantly with late spring blooms, the inviting blueness of the Gulf of Tarash distant on the eastern horizon as they'd finally crossed the border into the guarded realm at the foothills of the Cregon Mountains. The richness of the landscape had often made Kier's throat ache with longing to return it to Valraker's keeping, but Val would have to wait. First, they must accomplish the task he'd set for them. Being unified against a common enemy had shoved Kier's anger at Derry to a sideline, but she had not forgotten, and she hadn't felt completely at ease in his company since they'd left Shale. They'd had only a few skirmishes, and no one had been seriously wounded, but they had breathed a collective sigh of relief at crossing over into the guarded realm. Now they travelled through the Donan Forest, at the north end of which they would find the city of Placatha. The road through the hemlocks and cedars of the Donan Forest had at one time been well-travelled, though in the past year or two undergrowth had been spared the trampling of many hooves and feet. Swordfern and Bracken did their best to blot out the path, while gentle Deerfern lined it in its polite way of indicating what the more gregarious plants tried to conceal. Jeskellen had to magic some fallen conch-covered logs off the path, then got wet up to his knees when they forded the serpentine stream that crisscrossed the trail once in a while. Skimnoddle occasionally dashed off the trail to pick herbs, wild ginger, onion, and mushrooms to enhance his cooking. Derry exclaimed with more subdued eagerness each time he happened upon another variety of fungus or plant specimen for his physicker's kit. The part of the forest in which they now travelled was particularly close. Overhanging branches dipped downward across the travellers' faces, and Derry, especially on his warhorse, could be heard cursing as he dodged the low-hanging growth. Kier looked over her shoulder at him, smirking at his predicament. At one point Derry drew his sword and hacked at a branch. No! Fennel cringed in horror as if the weapon had been drawn against him. Derry arrested his action. What? Sorry, Captain, but I'm a wood elf. If you hurt the trees, I can feel it. What do you suggest I do, then? If a person is in your way, do you simply cut him down? No, you say, excuse me, and the person moves aside, if he's got any sense of etiquette anyway. Same thing with trees, only they take a bit longer to react. Just shift them aside and they'll remember that this is a road and they'll stop being so greedy about the space. Derry stiffly apologized. Kier suspected he wasn't entirely sincere. It's obvious nobody's come this way in a while, Fennel said, more to himself than anyone else. The trees don't usually forget so easily. "'How do you mean?' Kier said. "'It's just strange.' His voice was quiet, thoughtful. "'I'd have expected—' 
But never mind, Fennel broke into the elvish tongue. Are you still glad you came along? Kier had been taking advantage of every opportunity to practice her elvish in an effort to grasp Fennel's fluidity and outgrow the staccato human accent she'd learned from Brendau. The first time she'd spoken in his tongue, Fennel's face had lit up in surprise. He was delighted and more than happy to help her master the unusual inflections of his particular dialect. "'What? Oh, on the journey,' she said, picking up the language. "'Yes, of course. I just want to get to Placatha so I can feel like we're doing something. All of this riding does not feel like progress.' "'It won't be long,' the elf replied. "'We're not far.' "'Are you sure your father will help us?' "'Of course. My father is the Lord of Donan and a citizen of the Guarded Realm. Any chance to aid the Allies in the south is another thorn in Dragor's side. "'Here!' He called back to the others and drew Laot off to the side of the trail. See, I do know my homeland. They set up camp in a glade of hemlocks, its floor spongy with eons of needles dotted with symmetrical bunchberry flowers. The company rubbed down the horses and fetched firewood. Jeskelin spread his tracking confusion spell over the last leg of the day's journey, and Skimnoddle worked his own magic. Even Kier was forced to admit that Skimnoddle was handy to have around. The halfling was a most excellent cook. If this was what Valraker had been referring to when he'd said the company would wonder how they'd managed without him in the past, Kier didn't know. The halfling was passable with a bow, but if he had any other indispensable talents, he hadn't demonstrated them yet. No matter, for now the cooking was enough. It took him no time at all to employ his little blow-dart to deprive a rabbit family of a couple of relatives, and soon they were turning happily on a makeshift spit. While the meat turned, the drippings making pleasant cracking and hissing sounds as they plopped into the flames, the others erected their shelters of tent cloth. Skimnoddle prepared a side dish of wild strawberries and miner's cabbage. Kier took a few vessels to fill with water and tore herself away from the smell of rich roasting meat that tantalized her nostrils and made her drool. She followed a tiny streamlet down through the trees and knelt by a pond. As she raised her head from the crystal-clear pool, Kier was startled by what she thought had been tiny flashing lights in the air above her head. When she looked where she had seen them, they were extinguished. She stared into the darkening forest for a moment and shook her head. They must have been either fireflies or her imagination. When she returned to the camp, she mentioned the lights to Fennel. He looked puzzled. They sound like sylvan sprites. He shook his head. But that doesn't really make sense. I've never seen them in our forest before. We're so close to home. There's no way Father would allow anything hostile to spend much time this close to the city. Kier detected a tautness in these last words, a conviction that she didn't think was entirely necessary. The sprites are hostile? No. She opened her mouth to question him further, but the skin on the back of her neck prickled. She felt eyes peering at her from the shadowed woods and shivered. At the same time, the horses began to fidget, and Donegal snorted tetchily. The party, alert now, moved calmly but automatically into their standard defensive positions, drawing weapons and making ready for whatever it was. Skimnoddle, who had been facing the fire tending the rabbits, turned around, giving his eyes as much time as possible to adjust to the dimmer light. His very short recurve bow was already in hand. "'What is it? Where?' Derry whispered, his armor glowing in the firelight. "'Over there!' Fennel indicated the darkness off to his left. I see two of them. Two of what? Derry said, squinting in the direction Fennel had nodded. Cats of some kind, the elf replied. About sixty feet away. They must smell our dinner. They'll be hard-pressed to get it, Skimnoddle said. They'll have to pass through me first. 
I imagine they would just go over you, Kia remarked dryly, gripping her bastard sword and peering into the shadows. There's another one over here, Janik said, squinting into the darkness on the other side of the fire. Kier saw that this one was much closer and approaching quickly. She circled closer to the dwarf, and by that time it was near enough to identify. Looks like a cougar, Janik said, though it's an awful biggin. An arrow whizzed past Kier's head, and she glanced back to see Skimnoddle fitting another one to his bow. The first one had merely shaved a short strip of the animal's fur, catching its attention but causing it no damage. Angry now, it bounded, deftly avoiding fallen logs and low-hanging branches. Kier's sword arm twitched, yet she hesitated to injure such a graceful, fluid creature. She was startled out of her admiration when the cougar took a running leap from fifteen feet away and knocked sturdy Janik into one of the shelters. The cloth entangled him as he brought it to the ground. Kier swiped at the animal, drawing blood from its hind leg, giving Janik a chance to roll over it and out of the mass of cloth. One fork of his beard took on a red hue. Her sword flew up again. The other two cats had reached the edge of the glade. One of them had an arrow sticking out of its side, but it hardly seemed to deter the creature. Jeskellen's hand pointed to the other cat and let fly a lightning bolt that nearly missed its mark, singeing the animal's flank. It hissed in pain and fury. "'Careful, Jeskellen, or you'll have the whole forest up in flames!' Fennel cried, tossing his bow aside to take up his bastard sword. The mage had better success with his second lightning bolt, but not quickly enough to prevent the ferocious animal from gashing four parallel rents down his robe." Derry wrenched his weapon out of the foreleg of Fennel's cat, having frustrated its attempt to hook its claws into the elf's arm. He raised the glinting steel for a second strike when a crash startled him. An enormous black cat had dropped onto Skimnoddle from above, knocking over the spit and sending the rabbits right into the fire. The halfling cried out, struggling, and Derry was there, sword aimed at the creature's neck. He stabbed the sleek animal's deceptively tough hide. At the same time, Skimnoddle used the arrow he had intended to let fly, thrusting it with all his might into the beast's snarling maw. Derry dragged the sagging cat off the halfling's supine form and offered him a hand up. Janik's hammer bashed a bloody dent into his wildcat's head. With Janik on top of the creature, Kier could not slash downwards from above. Instead, she dropped to her knees and thrust her sword low to the ground, avoiding Janik's knee and piercing the cat through the ribs. They fought, panting and swearing amid feline yowls and screeches. As suddenly as it began, all sound ceased. Kier lost her balance and nearly fell over as she missed the animal who had fallen out from under her sword's path. All four beasts had simultaneously dropped dead. Their massive bodies were sprawled around the camp like deadfall. Kier's eyes darted, trying to focus on the tiny flecks of light that hovered over the glade, not staying still long enough for her to perceive whether they were real or not. Look! was all she managed to utter before they had vanished again. Kier breathlessly wiped sweat from her eyes and looked around the clearing at the dead animals. What in death's name just happened here? Skimnoddle had scuttled to his feet, and despite the rising lump on the back of his head, grabbed his tongs and used them to right the spit. He removed the rabbits from the fire, murmuring, hot, 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 to himself as he tried not to burn his fingers. I do believe these are done to a turn, he announced proudly. The meal could not have been cooked closer to perfection if I had planned it this way. Those of you who like your meat rare shall have a slice from this end, and for the others there is a mouth-watering selection of slightly crunchy bits from this side. Derry scowled, ignoring him. Why does there appear to be three different species of wildcat? He was right. There were two of a tan color, the black one, and one with spots. 
Fennel nodded, his teeth clenched. Working together? In what seemed very much like a planned attack, Kier could not believe her eyes or her own words. Jeskelin moved over to the animal nearest him and held his palm over it. I wouldn't have been surprised, well, as surprised anyway, if they had all been cougars, said Fennel, picking himself up and gingerly touching a deep scratch on his thigh, because we're near the base of the Grey Mountains and they do tend to wander around, cougars, panthers, and jaguars working as a team. It's crazy. A bit on the big side, too, Janik threw in, picking bits of sticky fur off his warhammer. He was still bleeding from somewhere beneath all his hair. Exactly, said Jeskelin, moving to another dead cat. I would surmise that Dregor has dipped his fingers into the guarded realm in a dangerously subtle way. He held both hands over the animal. I'm feeling magic in these creatures, and I would be willing to wager that all four have been subjected to a dose of Lord Dregor's power. What better way to infiltrate a territory than by using animals that are indigenous to that area? They are not quite twice the size of their unaffected brethren, which— Now hold on just a minute, Fennel said, slapping his hand on the rock he had conscripted into use as a chair. My father is the lord of this forest. There is absolutely no way he would allow Dregor to get his filthy tendrils into any of it by any means whatsoever. He would know about it, and he would wipe it out. That's it. There was a long pause as Fennel's eyes challenged the mage to add more details to his hypothesis. Finally, Jeskelin lowered his slender hands and shrugged, joining Skimnoddle at the fire. Fennel folded his arms and scowled. Derry slowly resheathed his sword, cleaned of jaguar residue, and spoke in a low voice. Fennel, how long has it been since you were home? Five years, the elf replied crossly. Derry left it at that. Ah, Fennel! A lot can change in five years, my friend. I wish I could say tune in next week for the company's arrival in Placatha. Instead, tune in next week for some other stories. We've been watching Secret Scotland with comedian Susan Kalman on Knowledge Network. And here's a fun fact we learned. In 1912, suffragette Ethel Moorhead went into the National Wallace Monument in Stirling and smashed the glass case where William Wallace's sword is kept. And she left a note saying, Your liberties were won by the sword. Release the women who are fighting for their liberties. And I just think that's a cool little fact. It is full-on fall now and almost chilly enough to turn on the furnace. We're a little bit behind the time when I'm usually ready to turn it on. This might be because the general temperature is higher, or it could be because my general temperature is higher. Either way, we are saving money on the gas bill. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Thanks to the original six. And thanks so much to you. I hope you'll join me next week. Until then, be kind, be calm, and be safe. Now go be fantastic.